So I, I, I was planning this morning's uh, hook and I was like, oh, I'll get Pastor Calvin up on stage for what I'm about to do. Then I came and I realized Pastor Calvin's actually on holidays this week celebrating his 10th wedding anniversary. So for my opening this morning, what I want to do is actually invite Pastor Reverend Brad Foote to the platform. Can we welcome Brad? Now... It's the bounce in his step that he has. Yeah, yeah, Brad's my bounce for those people online going, what did he just mouth? That's what he mouthed. Now, if you've never met Reverend Brad, that is such a shame. And I would actually question if you come to our church week after week after week, because Brad is an amazing man of God. But here's what I want to do. I want to do a bit of an activity. You've seen Brad gymnastically jump up on stage. And maybe you know Brad, maybe you don't know Brad. But what I want to ask you to do is, in two words, how would you describe Brad? It's, no, 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 don't yell at me just yet. It's just like, let's have some decor. Let's have some order as the Holy Spirit brings. Hey, well, how, would you, how would you describe Brad in two words? And tell the person next to you. Now, if you don't know Brad, well, look at him. And how would you describe Brad in two words? You shouldn't have laughed when I said, look at him. Poor Brad. He's like, what are they laughing at? Nothing, Brad. You look beautiful. In two words, how would you describe Brad? Turn to the person next to you, and then I'm going to ask for some options. If you're online, why don't you throw them in the chat? How would you describe Reverend Bradley Foote in two words? Alrighty, alrighty. What did we get? Who's got something for me? Let's see some hands up. Oh, yeah, it said third row. What do we have? Good father. Wow, beautiful. I love that. I love that. Let's go down the very back down here. Do we have someone down here? Yes, back row. Genuine and faithful. I love that. Down the back on this side. Yes, hands up, Justine. Hard working, hyphenated. You could have given me a second word, but that's fine. Kira. Servant-hearted. I would agree. If I had to describe you, Brad, I'd say faithful and true. Faithful and true. When I asked his wife, who was sitting in the front row in the first service, I said two words, Cheryl, and she goes, energetic. And I'm like, that's one word. She goes, I know. And she actually looked really happy about it. So it means you're a beautiful and faithful husband. I would say all those words. Interesting, no one had anything terrible to say about Brad. And I think that shows you the kind of quality of man this man is. Can we thank Brad for jumping up on platform for me? If you have not met Brad, then make it a point to meet him. He's a great man of God and a faithful follower of Jesus Christ. But why did I do that? Number one, because I thought it's always good to honor. Number two, because I'd say this. How hard is it to actually come up with two words? It's difficult, isn't it? Because when you come up with two words, you're choosing two things at the exclusion of all other things. If someone's saying that Brad's energetic, what are they not saying about Brad? They're disqualifying. They're saying Brad's not lazy. He's definitely not boring. If you're around Brad, it's like a shot of adrenaline into the system, right? They're saying these things about Brad. And and I say this because how would you answer this question? In two words, describe God. If you had to, describe God in two words. Now, remember, whatever you choose is the exclusion of all else. And I say this today because we're in a series in 1 John called Light. And love. And when the elder John, when the apostle John, the man who wrote, we believe, the gospel of John and the letters of John, John 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John, when he wrote these, he took on the challenge of deciding how would he describe God in two words. And he chose this that God is light, John 1. And in him there is no darkness at all. And the secondly, I heard some people suggest that God is love. 
Now, some of you have heard this stuff. Some of you have heard it said by non-Christians, I love that God is love. That's my favorite part about God. But maybe when we say that God is light and God is love, maybe you're bracing for a series that is airy and fairy and kind of like fluffy and isn't it nice? And I think it's because what we've done is we've disempowered these words in our common vernacular because of how often we use them. I think to describe God as light and God as love are terms that carry weight, terms that carry power, terms that should redefine who we are. Friends, do you know the God of light and do you know the God of love? See, there are things that we can say about God and there are things that we cannot say about God. And in 1 John, what the writer is doing is he's saying to us, let me tell you truths about God because there are also things you should not say about God. God is love, therefore God is not hate. God is light. And what we'll find out today is that therefore there is no darkness in Him at all. Sometimes in our modern day and age, what we think is that God is a figment of what we've created, that we get to decide who God is. But in the person of Jesus Christ, God stepped out of being removed from time and stepped into time as a real person, which means in 1 John 1 verse 1, where we read that John saw God, God, he touched God and he heard God. The reason why it's important that Jesus came is because it removes our ability to have an opinion on who God is. Friends, we do not get to decide who God is. We do not get to decide who God is, but we do get to discover who God is. Any more than you get to decide who I am, but you can discover who I am. Why? Because God is a being. God is tangible. God is real. He's not the ethereal component of all your hopes and dreams. He's the very making up of the hopes and dreams you never knew you had. Why is John writing about this? Why is he spending a whole letter talking about God of light and God of love? Because there's a problem in a church that he is the pastor of. In a church in a city called Ephesus, John is writing, and I think there's actually a sermon that he preached there. And as he's preaching this sermon, he's addressing an issue. Because there are Christians in the church or Christians in the church that have broken away from the church and they've started to teach things that are really dangerous. They've started to question if Jesus was actually God. They started to question if God was even about love at all. They turned to this thing called Gnosticism, which is not about God is truth and we can discover him, but God is whoever you look into your heart and you want him to be. And the book of 1 John is John saying, no. That is not correct. Do not listen to this teaching. We can know God and be known by God. But there is something far more important for John as he writes this letter. John is worried about counterfeits. John is worried about counterfeits. Have you ever encountered a counterfeit before? A guy named Mahmoud did when he was in South Africa. See, Mahmoud went to South Africa to uh, look at all the wild animals that maybe he'd missed out in the wildlife of uh, where he was. And when he went there, he went to see a particular animal in person. He wanted to see zebras. He was so excited about zebras. But when he drew closer to these zebras, he realized there was something wrong with these zebras in this zoo that they didn't look the way he thought zebras should look. They seemed to have lines that ran into each other. They seemed to hee and haw a little bit too much for a zebra. And so he took a picture of them and put it online and said, are these actually zebras? A zoologist came online and said, they are not zebras. They are donkeys painted black and white. And you can tell because of their snout. You can tell because they've definitely smudged some painting. Now, what this, what this zoo had done 
is they'd, disco- they'd, they'd actually lost their zebras. They'd, they'd actually had their zebras removed, but they didn't want to lose customers. So they got some cheaper animals, some donkeys. They'd painted them black and white and just hoped no one would notice. Why do I say this? Because friends, when he rocked up and he found it was a counterfeit, I think he was cheated because the zoo pertained to have a certain thing and it didn't have it. And I wonder how people might feel when they come to new life. Do they see zebras or donkeys painted black and white? Some of you are like, they see a donkey. Look at that guy. Do they see zebras or donkeys? And this is what John's actually trying to say. He's trying to say this. How do you know when a zebra is a zebra? How do you know when a Christian is a Christian? How do you know if someone's actually a follower of Christ? I'll ask that of you, friends. How do you know? How do you know that someone around you is a follower of Christ? Because here's what, here's what I know. There are people in the room right now today, and shout out to you if this is you, who do not believe in Jesus or they do not really want anything to do with Christianity. If that's you today, can I say thank you so much for being here? You're so welcome. Thanks for belonging here with us. We want to shout your coffee afterwards. But here's more often than not, people who come like that are looking at, they're looking around at what does it mean to be a Christian? And maybe, friends, what if we're just donkeys painted black and white pointing to something that we are actually not, that we're frauds? What John's actually dealing with is the word that carries a lot of weight. He's dealing with something called hypocrisy. And friends, if you are not a Christian here today, I hope to make it clear what it means to be a follower of Christ. But if you are a follower of Jesus here today, I wanted to highlight that some of you may have been lost as to what does it mean? How do I know? Maybe you've been following Christ for a while and you've decided and take it upon yourself that you have the sole right to choose who's actually a follower and who isn't a follower. And this is what I would say to all of us. It's actually made very clear in the Bible. Because what we should long is that we would not be frauds, but that we would be authentic followers of Jesus. And that the world would look at us and see what they came to see, which is perfect reflections or marred reflections, if that, of Jesus Christ himself. And so what does this mean? It means that we must know first what it means for God to be light and God to be love. I was at Catalyst this week and a guy named Paul Henderson said it beautifully. He said that good theology leads to good anthropology, which means this. When you know truth about God, it leads you to know how you can truly live. And today, what I want to do is spend a moment knowing why is it important that we know God is light and in Him there is no darkness at all. So for this, I want to jump down to John chapter 1, verse 5. And we read this in John chapter 1, verse 5. It says this, that this is the message, right, John, that we've heard from Him and declare to you, God is light and in Him there is no darkness at all. Here, John makes a dramatic claim about God. He turns around and goes, can I tell you about the God that I love, the God that I know in Jesus, the God that I serve? He is light. Why is light a good thing? Why do we like light? What does it do for us? When you're in a dark room and you turn on the light, what happens in that moment? Everything is revealed. In that moment, you see pathways that were originally obscure. You see the truth of how things are. The light illumines. It guides. It shows the way. But John also says something really interesting here. He says, but in God, there is no darkness at all. Why does he make this distinction? Well, what does darkness do? Darkness conceals. Darkness hides. It is in darkness that we sneak 
When you ask someone to dim the lights, it's because you don't want them to see what you actually look like. Darkness diminishes. There's this moment in my household at the moment when I, Archer and I are getting ready for bed. My, my, my son Archer is two and a half years old. And when we go into his room, he'll, uh, I'll turn the light off. And then he'll go to shut the door. And he has this expression. He's like, it's darky dark time. And darky dark time is his way of saying that he would like it to be pitch black. And I didn't know why he was so fascinated with this. But in this moment, I turned the light off. And then Archer would go shut the door. And as soon as everything was pitch dark, Archer doesn't know that like, it's not just his eyes that are accustomed to the darkness that I can actually see what he's doing. But I don't pretend like I know what he's doing. And in that moment, as soon as it goes dark, I see my son just start to dance. He's like, yeah. And then the light comes on and he freezes. And he's like, everyone's looking. And then I turn the light back off again and he dances again. And it's like this moment of like, when the light is off, he can actually be what he wants to be. He can do what he wants to do because no one's going to embarrass him. It's the most beautiful thing. And one day I'll tell him, I can see everything you're doing in that moment. But not today because it's a beautiful. Why do I say this? Because I think this is why there's no darkness in him. I'm not saying that my son is the opposite of God, although at nap time I sometimes question if that is the truth. The reason I say this is because there is something that we can do in darkness that we cannot do in light. And that thing is not found in God. In God, there is no death. In God, there is no sneaking. In God, there is no need for falsehood, no need for duplicity, no need for pretend. For these are the way of darkness. And in God, there is light. And God is always honest. He always reveals. He always illumines. He always guides. He always speaks the truth. You cannot come into the presence of God and hide who you are or what you've done. For God illuminates everything. And why is this so important for us to know? Because of what John says, this means for us as people, and for those in the room who are followers of Christ, as followers of Christ. When you know that God is light, it changes three things. It changes your relationship to sin, it changes your relationship to obedience, and it changes your relationship to others. How does God being light change your relationship to sin? Well, he goes on to write in the rest of 1 John, verse 5 to 7, he says this, If we claim to have fellowship with Him, so if you're here today and you're like, yeah, I'm in relationship with God, And yet we walk in darkness. We lie and do not live out the truth. Here John is saying that there is something that happens when there are Christians who claim to be zebras and they're really just donkeys with good paint jobs. He's saying that we are lying in this moment and the truth is not found in us. What what is he talking about here? And we claim to know and live in the light, but we act in the ways of darkness. There's a great story of a man who's driving down the road one day and gets pulled over by the cops. And as the cops pull him over, he says, Officer, I wasn't speeding. Why did you pull me over? And the officer said, Oh, it's because I've been following you for a while. And when you were, you know, you got cut off by that old lady, instead of offering her a wave, you offered her a finger. And in that moment where you were at the traffic stop and, and that the pedestrian was crossing and, and you were frustrated, you started to shake the wheel in anger. And that when you were stuck in the traffic jam, I noticed that you were frustrated, you started to slam your finger and your hand on the wheel in this moment of anger. And the man turns and says, Is any of that a crime, officer? And he says, Oh, no, it's not a crime. But I noticed a bumper sticker on the back of your car that says, I love Jesus, do you? And I just just figured that this car must have been stolen. <laughs> what, what, what is the officer highlighting there in that moment? He's highlighting that you're declaring light on your bumper and darkness in the driver's seat. And this is what John's trying to highlight. Now, friends, the world is filled with Christians 
who declare light on Sundays and live darkness on Mondays. And John says this, if that's you, you're lying. And there is no light in you. There's no truth in you at all. And the reason why this matters, friends, is because the world is watching. The world is watching. There are people here right now who are watching how we are and who we are. There's one post that a magazine article questioned, why do you like to live in darkness? Why do you prefer darkness over the light? And this one reader wrote back into the magazine and says this, I prefer darkness over light. Why? Because the darkness allows me to hide who I am and what I truly feel. And in the light, all things have a chance to be revealed. Darkness makes it easier to hide. In the dark, you cannot see what is coming next. The darkness is a place where you can lose yourself. Lost in the dark is a great place to be because then you are free from what you were and can be whatever you want. The darkness is bliss. See, friends, I actually think if I'm honest, there are times in my life I really like living in darkness because I can hide what's going on. I can hide what's happening. I wonder if there are some people here who can relate with me that sometimes we actually really like darkness. And John wrote a gospel where in John 3.16, he said, For God so loved the world that he sent his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not die, but have everlasting life. But he went on to tell about how the world might interact with Jesus. And he says this in John 3 verse 19, The light has come into the world, but people loved darkness instead of light, because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that may be plainly seen that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. What's he saying here? He's saying, sometimes, friend, we pretend to live in the light so everyone else thinks we're being real. But really, in our heart of hearts, we prefer to walk in darkness so no one knows what's really happening. And the unfortunate truth is that this is just not the way God has called us to respond to him as light. This is not the way God has called us or, has, or, or, or invited us to live. That as God being light, there is a power, there is a hope. And, and, and the reason why Christians choose not to live in darkness, the reason why those who follow Jesus choose to live in the light is not because we are people who are sinless. It is not because that there are those in this room right now who believe that they've never done anything wrong and there's nothing in them that is a, like, like a problem for their life. No, no, no. See, this is why the Christians choose to walk in the light. It's because we've lost the fear of what it means to be exposed. In verse 7, John goes on to say, If we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us for all sin. What's he saying here? He's saying the Christian community should be the one place that people don't hide. The one place where there is vulnerability. The one place where those who once knew darkness choose to now walk in a light. And friends, I've got to be honest, I don't know if we do this very well. You know where I think does do it well from, from, from what I've heard is the groups that we call AA or Alcoholics Anonymous. When you rock up to an AA meeting, very rarely does anyone go to observe. When you rock up to that meeting, you have come because you are saying something about yourself and everyone in that room knows what it is. I struggle with alcohol. There's no hiding. And when you're in that room, you, you, you start off, you go, my name is, and then I am, 
someone who struggles with alcohol. Why is that a beautiful thing? Because in that room, there is an equal playing field where there's CEOs and homeless people. There's everyone in the room where they come in and say, hey, we all have this. And here's the problem. I don't think AA should be the best place this has lived out. It should be the church. The church should be the place where people come and they have fellowship, koinonia with one another. Why? Because they walk in not pretending that they're zebras, but going, hey, there have been moments this week where I was donkey and just making it up as I went. It's just a safe place for me to confess that. And we go, welcome into fellowship with the people of God. The one thing that should draw our commonality together in this community is not what we look like. It's not how we dress. It's not our common interests, friends. The thing which makes us a community is this key factor, that we are a broken people in need of a perfect God. Because just think about it for a sec. How many of you would be friends with people in this room if it wasn't for Christ? You and I probably wouldn't be friends. I'm a really boring person. I don't really have a sporting team. I have no real interest outside this. People are like, you know, what do you do? I'm like, I preach. I'm not the guy you invite to a party. There's a party trick where it's like, hey, Michael, what do you do for fun? I'm like, I could tell you about the gospel. And people are like, just shut up for the whole party. That'd be awesome. So why are we here? Why are you and I in the same room? Here's why. Because there's a commonality we share that is greater than what defers us, than what pulls us apart. The commonality is that I am a sinner, if not for Christ. And I need Jesus. And I am filled and with hope and joy where I am in a room of people who can hold their hand up and say, that's my story too. Friends, should this not be a place where non-Christians walk in and go, I'm worried there are just perfect people here. And we go, oh, you're not perfect? Oh, welcome home. Welcome home. But when we pretend that there is nothing wrong with us, the world is not fooled and either is God. Goes on in verse 8 and he says, If we claim to be without sin, we deceive, our, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. John is making a really big claim here. He's saying this, guys, we all sin. And if you're sitting there today and going, not me. But let me tell you about them. Then you deceive yourself. And the truth is not in you. There are times in my life, can I just make a confession, where I've been more preoccupied with talking about how everyone else is failing rather than confessing my own. There are times in my life where I've been more militantly able to talk about other people's shortfallings than asking God to highlight my own. This should be a place where we do not come to tell people what we observe in others, but confess with our brothers and sisters what Christ has revealed in us. Why? Because we know what sin is. Friends, you might be here going, I didn't come to church here about sin today. I'm with my mum. This is a really awkward... No, friends, this is a good message because it's a correct diagnosis of our problem. So he had Catalyst this week, a guy named Paul Henderson, a great lecturer. He, just, he was talking about this idea that sin in the Latin, this guy named Martin Luther said, it's incavatus in se, which means sin is when the heart curves in on itself. And maybe you're here today going, I don't know if I sin. The heart curving in on itself is just plain and simply it's selfishness. And just, just a quick poll of the room. Hands up if you've never been selfish. Hands up. It was a really tense moment then. Everyone's like, Jesus, did you rock up today? Some of you are like, you know, let, let me ask you this question. Hands up if you just, you didn't do selfishness this week. Like there was nothing selfish in your week. My hand's not up either. 
If we lie to ourselves, hear what sin does. Before sin hurts the world, it hurts us. For the heart to care for itself, there's another thing we talked about at Catalyst this week, is that sin by its nature, it's cannibalistic. It destroys the person as much as it destroys the world. It eats us alive. Why? Because it is the very antithesis of the divine order in which we were created to live, that we were not created to people who live for be selfish, but we were created to be a people who live actively outwards of ourselves. And friends, if we deceive, if we say that we do not sin, then we deceive ourselves. But there is a beautiful thing that we can read in verse 9 where it says, if we confess our sins, if we are a people who come and not just apologize, hey, I'm sorry I got it wrong, but we are people who say, hey, guess what? I struggle with greed. Guess what? I struggle with lust. I'm struggling with anger. If we can be a people of confession, there is a promise. The blood of Jesus Christ is strong enough to redeem us of all sin. That is why we gather. Because there are some of you this week who have shame, who have guilt, who have condemnation. That there are this week, some of you are carrying weights into your life. And you're like, I can't tell anyone about this. And I've got to tell you, friends, that's the way of darkness. To hide our mistakes is what darkness does because darkness speaks in the language of shame and accusation. And shame grows when it's hidden. Shame increases when we leave it in the dark because the one place, the one place that kills shame is the light. And it's the light of God. Because only in the light of God does God look at our shame and say, let me tell you what I've done. I have poured out my blood so you could come home that you might be safe, that you might be redeemed, that you might be called mine. Friends, the one thing that we as Christians must do when we fall short is not hide it, but confess it. Because the one thing that shame needs to live for long periods of time is to remain in the dark. If we claim that we have not sinned, it says in verse 10, not only are we deceiving ourselves, but we make God out to be a liar and his word is not in us. Because in Romans 3.23, through the Apostle Paul, the word communicates this. It doesn't say, for some people have fallen short of the glory of God. And let me tell you about who they are. There's a really good group over here. Like They're amazing. They rock up at New Life on Sunday mornings and they're doing really well. But there's a bunch of people over here and boy, they're really struggling. Now it says, for all have fallen short of the glory of God. All have fallen short of the glory of God. One of the beauties, but also problems of sin is it's an equal playing field. Is that there is no one in this room right now who has not at some stage in their life been operating in separation from God. And I just want to say there's someone here even right now as I talk. You're like, Michael, you're talking about my shame and all I want to do is hide. And I want to let you know that the reason why you're safe is you're safe in a group of people who now have a relationship with sin and a new relationship with sin. This is what light, light does. Light doesn't mean that we never sin. Light means that we as Christians now have a new relationship with sin. It's not about us never sinning. The simple fact is this. It's about us knowing where we run when we've fallen short. That is the marker of the Christian. The marker of the Christian is not that we don't stumble, it's not that we don't fall, but that we don't wait for a headline to post what we've done wrong. We are the first person because we live in the light to admit it, to own it, and to run to the one who is more than faithful and able to deal with all we have done. And that's what John goes on to say in verse 1 of chapter 2. He says, my dear children, he doesn't say, my dear hypocrites. 
He doesn't say, my dear donkeys painted as zebras. He doesn't say, my dear frauds. He calls you in lovingly. He says, let me explain to you my heart. My dear children, I write to you because here's my hope. I don't want you to sin anymore. And that should be our hope. We should hope that we would stop sinning. But I was talking to Scott Wrigley, our pastor in Coolangatta yesterday when we were driving back from Callis. And we were wrestling with this. He said this great line to me. He's like, the heart is not so much that we would become sinless, but that we would start to sin less. As we walk in the light, something shifts, something transforms, something changes in us. Why? Why? Because we know where we run with our sin changes everything. It goes on and says, but if anybody does sin, friends, this is good news today. If any one of us does have shame, if any one of us does has fallen short, what do we know? We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. What is he saying here? He's saying that if you are a Christian, if you are a follower of Christ, then Jesus plays a role when you fall short. He is what we call an advocate. This is the beauty, friends, of why we get to confess. Because when I fall short and I bring my failures before Christ, He doesn't come before God the Father and go, Oh, He did it again. I did not see that coming. He doesn't come before God and go, Oh, man, Michael, Michael keeps stumbling in this one area. Maybe we should take him out a bit. Maybe we should teach him something about this before we forgive him. Now, on the cross of Jesus Christ, the Son of God paid for once and for always the price that needed to be paid for everything I've ever done wrong. Not just the things I did when I was young, not the things that I just did up until today, but everything I will ever do. See, Christ paid the price for a death that you could not die, that you should have died after living a life that you could not live. And he stands before the Father now as an advocate. And that term is a legal term. Which means that God, that God did not forgive you because he's like, okay, let's just forget what you have done. Let's just forget your sin. But when we sin, friends, we break the very designed order of God and things. There is a price that we incur, the price of death. And someone has to pay that price in our place. And that's what Jesus did. And why did he do it? So now when you come before God and you bring whatever shame and guilt and condemnation you have, you have an advocate. Like a lawyer would defend you in court, Christ defends you before the throne. He stands there and when you say, God, I struggled with greed this week, and you bring your brokenness and your sin and your shame, here's what Jesus does. I've paid the price. My blood covers you. You are still my son and my daughter. This sin does not define you. Welcome home. He stands before the Father, and the Father doesn't look at your sin and your shame. The Father looks at Jesus, and in your place, He sees the perfection and the righteousness of God. Friends, when you are in Christ Jesus, when you walk in the light, what does God see? He sees the perfection of His Son, because on the cross of Calvary, the great exchange happened. All of our sin and shame was placed on Christ, and all His perfection and goodness came to us. There are some of you here today, You've actually been hiding some stuff. There's greed. There's lust. And everyone always goes to lust, right? But we never really go to greed when we think of sin. There's pride. There's anger. And we're donkeys painted as zebras thinking that no one can tell. But one day, whether now or in eternity, the light will expose everything about us. And the question we must ask is, have we allowed the light to do the work only the light can? 
Friends, I want to ask you today, have you allowed the light to deal with what's actually going on in your life? Because here's the truth, is that when we do, it changes our relationship with sin, that we no longer run from God, we can run to God for help in our time of need. When we fall short, we can show the world that we do not wait for the world to point out our failures. We run to Jesus Christ himself, our advocate, our friend, our defender, our, the one who stood in our place. But not only does it change our relationship with sin, this is what it means to walk in the light. It changes our relationship with obedience because when you realize everything that Jesus has given us, everything he has done, we no longer see obedience to God as a weight to be carried but as a joy to be stepped into. Because it's the obedience to God. When we say, hey God, how are you calling me to live? It's not about earning His favor, but from His favor, we are now free to learn what it means to walk in the light. And God says, even in 1 John, 1 John goes on to say a little bit down where He says in verse 3, He says, those we know that we've come to know Him if we keep His commands. How do you know someone's walking in the light? It's not just that they know how to confess their sin. It's that they know how to be obedient and follow Christ. Why? Because they know that Christ says things to protect us from the darkness that would eat us alive. Friends, I just ask you today, are you lived in a place where you see following and being obedient to Christ is a joy and not a burden? It's a joy and not a burden. Because what happens when we know that God is light? He not only changes our relationship with sin, He changes our relationship with obedience, but it also changes our relationship with how we treat each other. Because what ends up happening is when you're someone who chooses to allow your vulnerability, allow everything that's wrong with your life to be exposed and to live in a place of authenticity, then you can look at other people, not as zebras or donkeys painted that way, but you can see and view other people and say, hey, no matter what's going on in your world, I will love you as I have been loved. This is why he talks about the God who is light and the God who is love. So let me finish by asking you a question today. Are you a zebra or a donkey? Some of you are like, that's a really weird takeaway point. Some of you aren't even in the zoo yet. You're like, I'm really confused. But I believe that what God has called us to be is be a people who people don't have to guess if we're actually followers of Jesus or not. That this church should be marked on Sunday mornings by those who weep, who cry because we have all fallen short. That this altar would be filled with people kneeling in repentance that we might stand in rejoicing that we have been forgiven. That this church would be marked by people who are shamelessly obedient to the call of God. That this church would be marked by people who love so wildly and so freely because they know how wildly and freely they've been loved. You know, when thinking through what identifies a Christian, when I was young, we used to wear WWJD bracelets. Does anyone remember that? You used to put fish stickers on your car. It used to be really weird in the 90s. That's how young I am. But Jesus gives us a great qualifier. You will know my disciples by their love for one another. And I say this because, friends, 
Too often the way we do church at New Life, it's just about rocking up and sitting, consuming and leaving. But if you walked in today and you're carrying a weight, then what God calls of us is that you don't leave here before you've actually chatted with someone about that. That's the way of Christ. That actually, if God prompts something on your heart today, that we are a people where this service is marked by obedience, that courtyard should be the most beautiful place. Because people don't rush after a service. They ask the question, Holy Spirit, who are you calling me to love? Too often, what this church has become is a place to consume God rather than be consumed by God and a fruit of His goodness. Because friends, what this church is, is not the role of the pastoral team, but everyone who has been called to walk in the light. When people come and visit, will they see donkeys or will they see zebras? I pray that they would see zebras. I pray that they would see Christians. I pray that they would see people who have shamelessly said, I am who I am. All my warts and all. Because friends, let me finish on this note as the band comes. This week, I've fallen short. This week, I haven't had it all together. And I don't stand in front of you as a pastor who's like, I'm doing a pretty good job at life. You could just ask my wife. There are things that just, you know, I'm still wrestling and struggling with. You don't attend a church led by a perfect person. The only qualifier I have for this job is that I just know the one who is. And I bring my sin to him daily. And I pray that that would always be the marker of this church. That we would not hold up anyone other than Jesus as perfect. And I say that to you today because I just want to welcome you into a moment where some of you today have carrying shame. Maybe it's shame from something in your marriage. Maybe it's shame from something at work. A relationship you shouldn't be involved in. An internet site you shouldn't be going to. A gossip chain that you know you shouldn't be a part of. And, and what do we do with that? We have to realize that Jesus Christ came to say, if you want, I will take that from you. Romans 8 verse 1 says, There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Which means if you walked in here today condemned, there's nothing more than your worst day. You can walk out of here free. Do you know that freedom right now? Are you walking in the light? Because here's the beauty. The world needs to know that there is a better way to live. And it is on us to live that out. Would you join with me as we pray? Gracious God, just in this moment, I recognize there are people online and people in the room. And I just ask, Holy Spirit, we just wait for you right now.
just words that just keep getting repeated in my heart, in my head today. It's, it's just this, just this invitation. Stop hiding. Stop hiding. Stop hiding. And if God's stirring something in your heart and, and you're joining with us online, I'd love to encourage you. You can click a prayer button just down below. But if you're in the room, this is what I want to ask. Do you know the freedom offered us in Christ Jesus right now? Have you asked God to forgive you of your sins? Romans 2 verse 4 says this, The kindness of God leads us to repentance. Repentance is a gift, not an obligation. To bring the darkness into the light and say, No longer will I let it consume me. Friends, Jesus wants to be your advocate. He wants to defend you today. He went to the cross for you. He died for you that He might take your sin, your shame, your guilt and say, No more. And He wants to offer you life and life to the full in response. And if you're here today and you don't know what it's like to be free from shame, you don't know what it's like to walk with God, you don't know what it's like to live in the light, and you're something you're stirring in your heart and you're sick of the brokenness, you're sick of the condemnation, you're sick of being nothing more than your worst day and hiding what's really going on in your heart, then I just want to tell you right now, it's time to repent and turn to Jesus the advocate, the counselor, the friend, the King of kings and Lord of lords who stands in this room and says, will you come to me with your heavy burdens and I will give you rest. If that's you today and you want to respond to Jesus Christ and say, I want to repent and turn and know freedom and life and life to the full, would you just open your hands up in front of you right now? People just still joining me in prayer, Christians all over this room and online praying, we just open your hands up in front of you right now. I want to pray for you. Jesus, in this moment, I just pray for those of us who are responding in this moment and saying, I need to know a better way. God, your light exposes every part of our life so that we might live in it, not run from it. So if you're responding to Jesus right now, you can just repeat these words in your head or in your heart. I'm just going to pray them. And this is to teach you how we approach God and how we start and to make a decision to follow Him. Dear Jesus, I repent of my darkness. I no longer want shame or guilt. I choose you. Forgive me. Lead me in your way everlasting. Teach me to live as a child of the light. In Jesus' name, amen. And just for those of you in the room, would you just stay with your head bowed and eyes closed? If you're someone who's a follower of Jesus today and you're like, you know what, there's shame I've been carrying for too long. I stop, by the time I stop lying to myself, lying to God, I just want to let you know you are safe here. You're in a room filled with people who struggle with greed, with pride at times, with anger, with brokenness, with lust, with shame and guilt. They just know where to take their sin, to the foot of the cross. And so I just want to say, if you're a Christian right now, and you're saying, it's been too long since I've confessed or repented, would you just open your hands in front of you? 
Lord God, the world is, is longing when they rocked up at the zoo, not to see donkeys pretending, but to see zebras living, to see sons and daughters of God living in the way of Christ as the people of Christ. I pray that you would forgive us. I pray right now for everyone with their hands open that you would drop a name of a Christian brother or sister into their mind that they might go to them and ask them, hey, pray for me, pray for me, pray for me. Lord, we don't need to do this alone, but in community, we get to do it in the light. May we know your forgiveness and your love today in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with me across the room today?